Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, here we go. Chris, coming at you guys again with another solo episode. This one is a little bit of a divergence. We've been doing a lot of Jordan Peterson lately, so I thought, oh, and by the way, we're not anywhere close to done with that. So I thought I would uh, throw something else at you guys. Interesting story or funny story behind this um, episode. I was in my office, uh, decided I had to clean out the closet in the office. It was getting a little bit ridiculous. In the closet, I found a bunch of stuff and a big tote, a bunch of old books that I didn't have room for that, you know, they're just stored and um, some movies and stuff like that. And in this stack of books was one with a kind of interesting looking sticker on the back. And I pull it out. I noticed that it's a library book. Stickers from the library. And then I remembered that I've had the book in my possession for, boy, like 20 years or something, like a long time, pretty close to 20 years. So I've got this library book, this 20-year-old library book, and I remember being a kid, this whole story, this whole story comes flashing back to me. I remember being a kid sitting at the library, uh, interested in religion. So I was going through the religion section, looking at a bunch of different books, and I just took it with me. I didn't check it out. I just took it with me. Um, as I recall, it was intentional. So I guess you could say that I stole a library book. So this episode is about, it's kind of me apologizing for that, for stealing this library book. I'm actually basically going through the closet. I find this book. I realize that it was something that I took and it was something that was in- interesting to me. That's why I took it. And then I also realized that I never read it. So Shame on me. Um, You know, double shame on me, I guess you could say. So I was like, you know what? I'm an adult now. That was a a silly thing to do. I'm going to go ahead and take this book back. So I haven't done that yet, but I'm going to. I'm going to go drive. I guess not even in this city, but I'm going to drive the next time I'm in that city to the library and drop it off in the, uh, you know, the drive-through drop-off. And then some some, uh, library employee the next day is going to be you know, putting those books back and scanning them back into the system and that she's going to be like, what is this little gym has been missing for 20 years. So anyway, um, this is my apology. I thought, um, I better go ahead and read the damn thing and, uh, might as well make a podcast out of it and bring everything that I learned to your, to the audience here. So, so you guys get to benefit from the guilt that I feel having stolen this book from the library. Um, Okay, so Black Mark will be off my soul eventually when this book goes back. In the meantime, the book is called 
It's called Shinto. It's called um, Shinto World Religions by a lady named Paula Hartz. And I was interested because for those of you who don't know, and I'm guessing, I'm guessing probably most of you or, or all of you don't know what Shinto is. Uh, it's something that uh, I didn't know and um, took the book for that reason. And uh, I read it. Now I know. So, so Shintoism is a religion that comes from Japan and only Japan. It's one of these tribal religions that has been with the Japanese people since maybe before they even got to the islands of Japan. So it's very, very old. And when, when you learn about it, it will remind you of religions like that. And so it's kind of difficult to separate the idea of like classical Japan. So, and I was a big fan of like samurai, uh, you know, samurai culture and armor and all that stuff growing up. I thought it was really, really cool. Way cooler than like the, the knights in armor from Europe. I thought that, you know, that stuff was really cool. Um, so, you know, trying to like separate out all of that classic classical Japanese stuff from Shintoism is maybe hard because I guess just remember that Shintoism goes back way, way earlier than all of the stuff that you guys think of when you think of Japanese culture, Boshido and, uh, you know, samurai swords and all that sort of stuff. This Shinto predates all of this stuff. And so what it will, what it will remind you of are tribal religions. Like if you go back to, to Japan, when Shintoism began, we're going way, way, way back in time, uh, that the types of religious ideas that are floating around that type of culture. You could think about like tribal Africa, you know, tribes in the North and South America or tribes in Australia, people that live in a traditional way, you know, either a stone age culture or a uh, kind of an early uh, metal using culture, but like tribal, you know, small groups of people living together, living very close to nature. A lot of the religious traditions and ideas are very closely linked to what you might call spirituality, uh, but also nature. So these are nature, spiritual, nature worshiping religions. And Shinto falls right into that, into that category. So it's interesting. Um, and what I want to focus on here is, I, I'm going to be honest, the book that I mentioned, that I read, um, that I will kind of talk to you about here, it, it was written for for kids, basically. So uh, there's, a, you know, there maybe some things left out of this or some things that aren't taken seriously in this that I, that I take issue with, that I disagree with. But what I did was I actually went into the holy books of the Shinto religion and I read some and I'll read some to you today to try to get a more sophisticated look at all this stuff. Um, but I just point that out to mention that we're going to go through the timeline a little bit using this book uh, from the library that was basically written for, young, you know, young, younger kids, you know, maybe like a 10 or a 12 year old is what the audience of this book. So take that, uh, take that with a uh, grain of salt. All right, so here we go. A little bit of introduction. Shinto is Japanese, uh, J Japan's native religion, like we talked about. It goes back to prehistoric times, so it goes way, way back before they have any writ written records, you know, probably before the people that we call Japanese today even ever made it to the island of Japan. The religion has no known founder. There's no Jesus, there's no Moses, there's no Muhammad. Shinto is a founderless religion, which is, you know, common with these tribal religions. There's not, usually not a 
um, human person that founds the the religion in these tribal cultures that is revered the way that we might revere, you know, Jesus or Buddha or somebody like that. So basically, no known founder. Um, I found this pretty interesting. The word Shinto, and if you've heard of the religion, you've, that's the word you've you've heard. The word Shinto is not even a Japanese word, so that kind of blew my mind. This, you know, extremely important part of Japanese culture, Shintoism, not even a Japanese word. Um, the word is Chinese, Shinto, and it comes from the Chin- two Chinese words, Shin Dao. Now, we talked about Taoism already, so you guys know Dao is a word that they use to it, it it means way. So Shin Dao means the divine way. And in these Asian cultures, that word way is used in a weird way. It's used like what we might call a way of life or a way of being. So when they say divine way, it's like saying divine religion, basically. But it's a way of being. That that's what their religion is. It's to it's to act and to think in accord with the with the tenets of the religion or with the will of the spirits, which is, which is what we're going to talk about a lot today. In, in Japanese, it's not called Shinto or, again, the Chinese Shin Dao. In uh, Japan, it's called uh, Kami no Michi. Uh, kami is the word that, um, that, that means spirit. It's basically the word that means God in the Shinto uh, religion. That's the word, Kami. So they, they would call their religion Kami no Michi, which means the way of the Kami. Um, interesting is that Shinto had no formal name at all until Buddhism came over to Japan. So they didn't even have, so listen to this, guys. They had no founder. They don't remember who started the religion. It's got no founder. And it's got no name. They don't call it anything. It's just taken, it's a given. It's a given. You grow up in, the, in a tribal way on the island of Japan. You're taught Shinto from, your, from the time you're born. You, you're not aware of any other religion. So why even give it a name? It's just the spirituality, the, 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 the supernatural way of understanding their lives and the supernatural components of the, of the cosmos, <clears throat> that all that stuff was a given and understood this in this kind of Shinto way, which we'll talk about. But when Buddhism showed up in Japan, then they're like, okay, so now we have the way of the Buddha, which is not the same as the divine way, as, as the Chinese would call it, the Shin Dao. So, so then in the 6th century BC, they're like, okay, we got to give this thing a name. Uh, and again, that's Kami no Michi, but we'll call it uh, Shinto. Now, the author of this book, he, he says that Shinto is similar to Taoism. And it's similar to Native American religions. And I think that's fair. I think that there's truth in that. You know, when we, when we did our episode on Taoism, we talked about that. You know, the whole idea was that there is a, that there is a overarching um, principle. Now, I wouldn't call it a god necessarily, you know, Tao, because, again, it means way. So it's not exactly like a thing. It's more of a principle or a process that that overarching principle that governs all of creation, all of reality in the material world, and it's what it's what the cosmos were born from. This thing, this Tao, whatever that is, um, because because it's it would be easy for us to talk about that and and spirit in the same way, you know, the way a Christian or a Jew might talk about spirit. Um, that that's kind of where the similarities come in. It's like. Shintoism is about worshiping spirits, and the spirits are 
uh, represented by nature, by the world around us, and by ourselves, by, by human beings. So we all have kami, let's say, uh, spirit. So to, to put it that way, you know, you can definitely make a connection between the way Taoism uh, uh, speaks and the way Shinto speaks. And the Native American stuff, again, if we're just talking about tribal religions, worshiping spirits, you can think about the Native American people with their, um, um, you know, their rituals, you know, rain dances and, uh, you know, things, things that they're doing in their religion to try to appeal to the forces of nature. Um, and worshiping their gods, you know, quote unquote gods, which they see as the spirits of nature. You can think of like a, like a totem pole, let's say, with all the different faces that, that are on the totem pole, representing usually animals, but they rep- the animals represent forces of nature and, and supernatural forces, you know. Um, so in that way, Shin- Shintoism and you know tribal religions, it, Shinto is a tribal religion. So of course, it's you're going to lump it together with the types of religious beliefs that people create when they live a life like that. So if we're talking about ancient China with the Taoists or Native American tribes or Australian tribes or whatever it is, these are people that live hand to mouth. Um, You know, they, from day to day, they they might eat, they might starve. They live very close to nature. You know, they, they see themselves as a part of it, not as, not as apart from it, which is the way the Western world, you know, overarchingly thinks that human beings are somehow separate from nature. This is not the way the, Sh- the Shintoism or any of these tribal religions would would spin that. They see themselves as a part of it, as an integral part of it. Um, now, the author of this book, he, he makes a comment here. He says that while Shintoism has some similarities with Taoism and Native American religions, he says it does not have a concept of an overarching power, such as the Tao of the Taoist or the great spirit of the Native Americans. And I, I got to put a big stamp uh, of bullshit on that statement. Um, to me, that sounds like something that you might say to a 10 or a 12 year old, like the audience of this book. So, you know, I'm not bashing him for it. But to make this statement, he's basically saying, hey, look, Shintoism doesn't have a high god, like a, like, a, like a creator god the way Christians do, where if we think of any other spiritual powers, like, you know, angels in a Christian perspective, let's say, that those, that those things are just, they just kind of roll up underneath God. You know, that there might be these other supernatural forces, but they're really just, you know, emanations of God. There, there's only one God, and, and all these other lesser spiritual powers or supernatural powers are just coming from God, or they're a part of God, something like that. Um, so, so to say that Shinto doesn't have that, uh, to me, I think is short-sighted you know it's like we'll get into this but when shinto talks about um talks about the kami the spirits of of the cosmos and when they talk about their creation how the cosmos came to be and the role that the kami play in that when we start to read that you'll see um clearly kami spirit are is not is not the first thing kami is not the thing that creates the universe so for them to say that Shinto worships these spirits, Kami, and that they don't have an overarching power like, like the great spirit of Native Americans, well, well then who created, the, who created the universe in Shintoism? Paula. That's the lady that wrote the book. Paula. Then who did that? 
Um, so we'll, we'll get there and you'll see that. I think there's, you know, again, I'm going to put a stamp of bullshit on that one and say that, uh, you know, you, you, you got to think a little bit more deeply there. Uh, if there was a, a something there before the commie, something that created the commie, then yes, of course, there's an overarching power that started the whole thing that's responsible for everything. Just like the great spirit of the Northern Native American tribes, you know, just like the Tao and Taoism. All right, moving on. Some interesting stuff about Shintoism that I didn't know that I'll bring to you guys has to do with religious tolerance. So when you think about Japan, I don't know about you, but maybe I'm being unfair. But when I think about Japan, I think about a culture that's been isolated for a really long time and on purpose, you know, because they want to protect themselves from intruders. They want to from invasion. You know, they live on this island. They're they're isolated. Their language is not related to really any other language in the world. Their culture is very much unique. Um, you know, they're they're an isolationist culture. And until you know, they started bringing in Europeans. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys remember the movie um, The Last Samurai with uh, Tom Cruise. Effing loved that movie. Highly encourage you to watch that movie. It's like it's like Dances with Wolves, but set in Japan, and uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, there was a, a cartoon that I watched growing up called Ronin Warriors, which was a Japanese animated cartoon about samurai warriors. So this stuff goes deep, deep, deep into, into my history. That you know, this love of uh, Japanese uh, things and culture. Um, but in any case, I didn't know this that uh, 68% of Japanese consider themselves to be Shinto. So uh, almost all of them. And uh, even a higher percentage of those people, like just a little bit over three quarters of those people, uh, again, that call themselves Shinto, they're also Buddhists. So that's weird. That's weird. So you have, again, a giant percentage of the population in Japan that that considered themselves Shinto. They would identify as Shinto. If you gave them a government form and said, check your religion on it, let's say, they would check Shinto. But they would also check uh, a Buddhist. So that's interesting. You've got a religion that is tolerant enough to allow somebody who claims to be the follower of one religious tradition to also claim to be the follower of another one and to have no conflicts as a result of that. It's like, hey, if you believe in the spirits uh, of Japan, uh, the spirits of nature and, and the, the kami of the Shinto, and you want to continue to, um, you know, worship them and give your, you know, give your uh, offerings to them and all that, like your, your family has done for generations and generations, that's perfectly fine. And if you believe all of that and also believe that you can uh, reach nirvana and uh, become a Buddha, then there's nothing wrong with you calling yourself a Buddhist also. There's nothing that conflicts about those two um, those two ideas so uh, I mean can you think of any other religion that that's like that I mean I can't it's interesting right all right so they also see no inconsistency in being uh, Shinto and something else so there's a lot of people that are Shinto and Taoist Shinto and Buddhist uh, that kind of thing um, Shinto even shares some of its temples and its rituals with Buddhists. So you can imagine going to a Buddhist shrine or going to a Shinto shrine and seeing another religion's rituals being practiced there with the other religion. I mean, there's just, you know, when you, when you think about the history of Western 
religion, like you think about the history of Judaism and Christianity, it's just nothing but conflict about people who don't agree with them. Um, you know, think about the, the conflicts between Jews, Christians, and Muslims today that, you know, have a religious heritage and beliefs that basically are identical on most, um, on most, you know, topics. Um, well, they can't get along at all, you know, in, in certain parts of the world, they're killing each other left and right. But in Japan, um, Taoists and Shinto followers and Buddhists, they're all just doing it together. Interesting. Interesting. I think maybe that has something to do with, um, well, like, like Paula already said, that Taoism and Shintoism really are pretty similar. So you might, you know, you might uh, merge some of those ideas on both sides and you might not even notice. So that doesn't, that doesn't seem strange. The Buddhism stuff may be a little bit different, but, but the thing about Buddhism is that um, it's the one religion in the world that, that people aren't 100% comfortable calling it a religion. You know, uh, people will often call Buddhism a philosophy as often as they'll call it a religion. So, so you might have a spiritual tradition that goes along with this Buddhist philosophy. Um, and we could talk about that. I mean, I, we don't have to get bogged down in it, but the Buddhists do have a philosophy. They have a philosophy called the, uh, the Eightfold Path, and it's just basically how you can um, behave and, uh, and act in the world and how you can control your thoughts. So basically disciplining your thoughts and your behavior so that you can reach nirvana. So that if, if you practice this way of living, that eventually you will, you, you will be released from the bondage of the material world and of the, the, the necessity of reincarnation, of being reborn into it. And you'll, you'll, you'll be enlightened and be able to kind of exist above that process. So it's really a, kind of a beautiful idea, but it's, a, it's an idea that seems to supersede religion. It's, it's, it tends to supersede the power of the gods, you might say, because somebody who's become Buddha, somebody who's become enlightened is greater even than the gods. Um, so again, you might be a Shinto follower, and once you've, once you've reached nirvana, then, then you're a Buddhist. And um, they have a saying in Japan. Um, I don't know the Japanese, but they have a saying that says, you're born Shinto and you die Buddhist. And that's like a saying there. And that's what they mean. Um, okay, so when the, Chi when the Chinese religions came to Japan, which Paula says here that that may have happened around to the two, 200 CE or 200 AD, that Shinto also incorporated um, aspects of Taoism and Confucianism. So it's just like the type of religion that is absorbing what's good from other religions, that's not rejecting other, other uh, religious beliefs, it's being tolerant and accepting. And as a result, it's flourishing. As Japan is changing, Shinto is not going anywhere. It's, it's flourishing. Another weird thing about uh, Shintoism is, apart from the fact that it doesn't have a founder, um, there is no way to join the religion. So it's not like they're going out and trying to get new followers the way, you know, Christians or Mormons or something might, might do. Uh, they don't do that. No uh, evangelizing whatsoever from a Shinto. And if you marry a Shinto, let's say, or if you want to, you know, take the catechism and become a Catholic or become a Shinto like that, like, like, like a Catholic would, there isn't a process for that. So 
they don't, it's like they don't want new followers. They, they don't, haven't created a process for that. Um, there isn't a founder, you know, so there's a lot of weird differences uh, from Shintoism to, you know, modern religions that make it seem like, like it goes without saying, like, like this stuff is so fundamental to existence. Uh, the idea of spirits and our relationship to them and their their um, their role in the creation of the universe and their role in the life that we experience that you know our life let's say that all that stuff is taken for granted to the point that they don't need to explain it they didn't need to give it a name until B- Buddhism showed up in Japan you know it had no name it has no founder and you can't join it it just is that's a very Taoist thing to say it just is. All right, so I'm going to give you guys a little taste of Japanese because um, before we get too much into the uh, into the meat here, I did learn a little bit of Japanese, um, not much. I mean, I know like, you know, domo arigato and, you know, stuff like that. But when I was in high school, there was a guy named Charles. Uh, shout out to Charles, whose last name I've forgotten because I haven't thought of him in 20 years. Um, but a nice guy. And he he's one of those guys that had a he had a um, a gift for language. And I, I say that, but you know, I never put any effort into it, but it, it, it was something that spoke to him. He was very passionate about it. So he put the time in and he loved it. And Japanese was one of the languages that he particularly liked. And he taught me a little bit, a little phrase, and I'm going to give it to you just, just for ambiance guys. We're talking about Japan today and this ancient Japanese religion that nobody's ever heard of. So I'm just going to put a little context on it. Here we go. Watashi no kane wa doku ni aremasu ka? Yep, yep. Uh, that phrase is not religious. I, it, if I remember what Charles told me when he taught me that way back when, is it means something like "Where's my money?" Something like that. And ha ha ha, that was a very funny thing to learn, just like learning a curse in Spanish or something, and and dropping it on all your friends. So that's just a little taste of the Japanese. I don't know how my pronunciation is. If anybody's Japanese in the audience, let me know. Watashi no kane wa dokuni aremasu ka. There you have it. There you have it. Another Japanese reference that I want to drop, because I talked about Dragon Ball, I talked about uh, about um, uh, Ronin Warriors, which was a, a Japanese anim- anime cartoon I used to watch growing up. Uh, but I also used to watch Dragon Ball Z, uh, another, and Dragon Ball for that matter, another Japanese cartoon. The reason I bring it up, other than the fact that it's awesome, is that uh, there's a cultural reference from the cartoon, uh, the Rainbow Bridge. So if anybody knows Dragon Ball, you know about the Rainbow Bridge. Um, So I didn't realize until I started reading the Shinto holy books that that's a real thing in the Japanese uh, mythological tradition. The Rainbow Bridge is like the, um, the bridge that connects the world of the living to the world of the dead. And that's exactly what it is in Dragon Ball Z. When uh, one of the characters will die, uh, he has to he has to go um, trek through the Rainbow Bridge until he gets to the other world. And when they get resurrected, they have to come back from the other world down through that Rainbow Bridge. So we I just bring that up because we're going to get to this Rainbow Bridge idea. And if anybody happens to know Dragon Ball, you already know this. All right, first things first, I want to talk about. Shinto worship and belief so you can get some idea of what it is that they think uh, what's their religion all about and what do they do what what are, they, what, are they, what kind of things do they do to practice this religion what what is it all about all right so let's go back to what Paula says 
She says, to understand Shinto, it's, it's important to understand the concept of kami. Kami literally means high or superior, but sometimes translated as god or spirit. All right, so for those Dragon Ball Z fans, you might remember uh, Goku, the hero of our story, with his particular um, special attack, Kamehameha. So in that Kamehameha, you see the word kami, and this is very important. Again, kami, you just think of that word as spirit, and Paula, pick it up. So she says, the title God suggests a division between the human and the divine that followers of Shinto do not make. Now, I think that is extremely important. Maybe the most significant statement of this whole thing. That in Shintoism, they don't have a word like God. That kami doesn't mean exactly like God. Um, you know, like we might say, um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the words that mean God, like from the from the Latin or from the Greek. But we don't have those sorts of things at all in the Japanese language. They just have this word kami. It doesn't mean great God. It doesn't mean creator God. It doesn't mean the source of, of existence. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means spirit. It means high or superior. It means something like something like you and I, but something higher, something superior. It's like us, but something higher. It's this, it's this you know, non-material spirit. And she explains that they don't have this word God like we do because they don't they don't make a distinction between a human and a spirit. Now, I, I love that. Now, if, you know, coming from like a Christian background, we don't have a problem with that either. You know, we, we think of ourselves as having a spirit, that our body has a spirit. Like it's, there's a physical part and there's a supernatural part. And whatever that is, it's sort of associated with our mind or our personality and, and the force of life, the thing that makes us alive. And we call that our spirit. But what he's saying here is, or what she is saying here, is that this idea of divine, like something that we would call God, um, they don't make a distinction between that, the idea of God, and the idea of human beings. So what does that mean? I mean, on the surface, that means what, what you would expect to see from a religion that's tribal, from a religion that's probably heavily influenced by the mystic experience. You know, these people that lived hand to mouth, that had periods of time where they starved and they had sleep deprivation and, and periods of time where they you know, would go off, you know, go off into the, you know, into the, the cave and explore their, you know, their minds and their, and their spirits, you know, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, you know, all of these things that you would imagine these tribal people doing, putting themselves in a position to have a mystic experience. Um, and that's to say nothing of what access they might've had to psychedelic substances. Um, but to say what this says, that the Japanese language doesn't even have a word like God, because the whole idea of that, the whole idea of God is not something that they can separate from the human or material world. And this is why nature is worshipped. This is why nature is considered so important and why human beings aren't considered separate from it because we're all a part of it. We're a part of this overarching thing we will call nature, you know, mother nature and the cosmos and everything all around us. Um, that, 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 all of that is considered divine. It's considered filled with kami. 
And these spirits are what makes it tick. It's what makes the universe do what it does. It's what makes us alive. That the kami are the gift of all of this, the gift of being and the gift of being alive. Um, that all of this is wrapped up together in, in this idea of kami. And so there is no way of separating out the cosmos, the things that exist, and ourselves from this idea of, the, of, of kami, from this idea of the divine. So to them, God is all wrapped up into one. It's, it's all of the cosmos, ourselves included, and all of the kami that animate the universe. That's God. Okay, that sounds a lot like Taoism. A lot. And again, that's exactly what the mystic experience tells you. That everything is one. That the, that the material world and, and, uh, and the thing that makes us alive, that all of that, consciousness you might say, that all of that is one thing. And that's the sacred thing. Everything is God. And that is what, that's what this Shinto idea of Kami is, is, is seeming to say. And when Paula says that, that the word God doesn't even exist in Japan because the idea doesn't even make sense in their worldview because they look at everything together as, as you know, imbued with kami. And so everything is God. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right, so um, the Shinto world is a continuous stream of creation. <sighs> beautiful. Another, another beautiful statement and another one that goes right along the same lines as the mystic intuition. So when, when, we say, when Paul is explaining that they don't have a word for God because everything's all rolled up into this idea of, of uh, kind of one divine thing, and then she goes on to say that, that, that the world that, that the Shinto imagine is a continuous stream of creation. It's like a continuous process of creation, that that is something that again, corresponds to the mystic experience entirely. And it also corresponds to the way that we've talked about this from Jordan Peterson's uh, uh, Maps of Meaning lectures, the idea of this, this uh, mythological landscape, that you, that you the, the conscious creature, that you are the knower, and that's one character in, the, in your internal world. The other two are the known and the unknown and the unknown is the place that, that Jordan would call chaos. So the known and the unknown are order and chaos from, in the, from the kind of mythological perspective. That what the knower is doing is going out into the unknown and bringing more of the known out of it. So you, you go out, you know, past your, the, the boundaries of your village. You go out into the forest, into the unknown wilderness, and you find what? You find something there, natural resources, another tribe, you know, whatever it is that you, that you find out there. Maybe it's a, a, a cave with, with, you know, a place where you can shelter. There's something there in the unknown. You just have to go out and find it. And this is what Jordan Peterson would also describe as a continuous stream of creation. That what consciousness is doing, consciousness, again, something that the mystic experience calls the one. It's the thing that everything rolls into. Everything is God, and that, that, that thing that everything rolls into, the one, the wholeness, that's something that, again, the mystic experience says is consciousness. So if, if Shinto is saying everything rolls up into one thing, the mystic experience tells you that that's consciousness. And then Shinto goes on to say that what consciousness does is, is a continuous stream of creation. It's just, it's just, you know, churning out new things. And that that is what consciousness does. That is what you and I do. 
We go out, we're the knower that goes out into the unknown and brings back new knowledge, new things out of it. So that correspondence to the mystic experience cannot be ignored. It's very obvious, very beautiful. All right, Paul goes on to explain that all things have spirit. The kami are everywhere, and almost anything can be kami. Even the most humble object may be invested with spirit. So you might think of like um, like a Buddhist. You know, they've got this nonviolence as a part of their philosophy. And you can see, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember what movie this is. They're in Tibet, and they're building... They're building a movie theater, like for the Dalai Lama or something, in the in the early 1900s, and the Buddhist um, the Buddhist monks are clearing out the, the uh, dirt for the for the foundation of the building, and they're carefully taking all the earthworms and the bugs that they find in the in the dirt. They're carefully picking them up and moving them to some other place, and 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 not killing them. They're they're very careful not to kill anything. Um, this is why, because you never know what what you encounter what it really is. You never know what its essence is. And there might be, according to Shintoism, there might be a kami there. So the spider crawls, crawls across the wall next to you and scares the living shit out of you. You reach over and you smash it against the wall that you've just killed God in some way. You've just killed yourself in some way. You've just killed your brother, your sister, your child in some way. So they understand the connection between things. And the value of that. It's not something that you can easily brush off. It's extremely important. Again, also very closely tied to the mystic experience. And here's another one. Shinto followers focus on life on this earth, not an afterlife or a, or a world to come, to which they give the highest value. The kami are the spiritual forces that inspire the world, giving it life. So it's a little bit of a flowery, kind of dumbed-down way of saying that um, there's really not an idea of an afterlife or, a, or you know, heaven and hell type of scenario, that they believe that existence, that their participation, that, that their opportunity to live and to, and to be alive, experiencing this, you know, uh, this miracle of, of, of existence all around us, that our life is our opportunity, it's our moment in the sun, it's our opportunity to go out and be a part of it and to be in it and in the thing that is, that exists. Um, so I think that's really interesting. No, no acting good in the world so that I can go to heaven or have a better life when I get reincarnated, like a Buddhist might say. Nothing like that. It's, look, I'm alive now. It's carpe diem. It's this moment is the sacred thing. The fact that I'm alive, the kami are what are, what are responsible for that. So the spirits that imbue the world, they're the thing that makes me alive. They're also the thing that makes the world around me exist and to make the world around me alive. And so the opportunity that I have to exist, my life is this brief miracle. It's this brief period when I get to walk around in it, when I get to experience it, when I get to be the thing that's alive in the world. I'm having my turn you know, to, to, to peek through the, through the, uh, you know, through the, the peephole to see the magic here that all of the rest of, of whatever God is, uh, it's not being, it's, it's lights out. It's, it's, it doesn't have, um, awareness or consciousness that it's just this brief little part of, of God that we call the cosmos that gets to be like that. And we're, you know, blessed with this opportunity to, 
be born in it and open up our eyes in it and experience it. That this is the way that Shinto frames the world. That life and the world around us is the miracle. The fact that we can open up our eyes and that our consciousness can pour out and, and, and see this thing that exists, that is the miracle. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's, 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 it's not, nothing like that. It's the here and now that, that's the sacred thing. And that is amazing and true. And it's what Taoism and uh, Vedanta Hinduism and early Christianity and the mystic experience all tell you as far as I'm concerned. And we're seeing it here with, with Shintoism. All right, the purpose of Shinto worship is to maintain close harmony between people, nature, and the kami. Now remember, so the kami are seen as the thing that is responsible for the existence of the cosmos and for life. So yes, we want to treat the kami as well as we can. We want to give them everything that they, that they need to continue going so that the world can continue going. So Paul goes on to say, people remind the kami of human presence by continually venerating and thanking them. So basically, the worship, the Shinto worship, is a constant and continual uh, expression of gratitude, just thanking the spirits for, for everything that they've, that they've done, for sustaining life, for providing all of the material world and cosmos that we see that's beautiful, that we can exist in, that we can observe, that all of that stuff, that our job is to continually recognize and thank the kami for doing that, for making that possible. Um, there's a particular kami, the, the goddess of the sun. So the kami, the spirit that's associated with the sun, she's by far the most important kami um, in Shintoism, which is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know that it was always that way, but it seems to have become that way and maybe pretty early. You know, the idea that the world is imbued with spirits kind of makes it difficult for me to imagine that one spirit would be more important than any other. But at some point that did happen. And the kami's name is, um, uh, oh boy, I want to try to pronounce this, um, Ama, Amaterasu, Amaterasu, it's probably wrong, but something like that, Amaterasu, and she's the kami of the sun. Um, she's considered the highest of the heavenly kami, and in her honor, it's in her honor that Japan is called the land of the rising sun. And when you look at the flag of Japan, and you see that white flag with that red sun in the middle, that's what this is an homage to, that that Japan is the land of uh, uh, Amaterasu. She's the land of the sun kami. Um, her importance um, in Shintoism seems to be connected to the culture changing in Japan. So when Japan became not, no longer a tribal culture, but when they became an, an empire and there was an emperor ruling over it, the emperor, like any monarchy, needs to have some reason why they're the emperor instead of you. You know, so most countries have a, an idea. It's called the divine right to rule or the divine right of kings, where we say somebody is somehow born special. It's usually hereditary. It's somebody's born special because they're, why are they special? Because their dad was special. Why was he special? Because he's the king. That, that's, the, that's the argument. So once there was an emperor, the emperor traced his lineage all the way back to uh, Amaterasu, the, the sun kami. So this is why 
the emperor has the authority to rule over the rest of the Japanese people because he descends directly from the kami of the sun. That's the idea. And it would be the same thing, you know, for uh, the, the popes, you know, saying that uh, they get to be top bishop. They get to be top dog in the Catholic Church because because I'm directly in the lineage of Jesus. Uh, I'm the, I'm the um, you know, the... Uh, um, Bishop of Rome. So I, I'm the successor of Jesus. That's why I get to be top dog. Same sort of thing going on here. All right, this is interesting. Shinto worship takes place outside. Now, they have shrines, so you can go into them, and there's holy places. But worship doesn't happen in the shrine. Shinto worship happens outside. I think that's that's awesome. I mean, I, I always like the idea of, like, any sort of ritual, like getting married or getting baptized or something, that those things should should happen in nature. I don't think, you know, I think you should do it Braveheart style. You should get married in the forest. Uh, you should get you should get baptized in the river. You know, you should have some connection and have a visceral experience of the world and nature when you're when you're having a religious ritual. Get in there, man. People that do it in a bathtub in a church, like come on, man, in a plastic bathtub. You're going to baptize me in a bathtub? Um, in any case. The Shinto worship t- takes place outside, as you can imagine, because because nature is the representation of the kami. You know, the the trees and the rivers and the mountains; those things represent the kami. They're the material manifestation of the spirits. Um, so they're not going to go inside where they can't see or experience those things and worship. They're going to look at those mountains, look at those trees and the sun and the rivers, and they're going to look at them as though they're seeing the reflection of these kami, and they'll give their their uh, offerings and their prayers to the mountains, to the sun, to the river, that sort of thing. It's beautiful, really. Um, you know... Trying to compare something like that to the uh, Western tradition is like we we abstract our rituals so much that they lose a lot of power that way. Um, so the idea that I'm sitting in a church, um, not like a not like a cathedral in Europe, because I've never been to one of those, and I'm sure that, that it's a whole different experience. But I'm sitting in this buttoned-up uh, evangelical church in Ohio. Um, you know, the building is not beautiful. The The hymns are from the 1800s. Nobody seems to be happy about singing them. It's just this, you know, blah sort of experience there. Um, that that type of experience, trying to put myself in a uh, in a mind frame where I'm grateful t- to, the, to God or grateful to the universe for my existence and for everything that's out there, that's sitting in this old building singing dry hymns that no, nobody has any passion in their in their voice like that that's not the way to do it guys you know take take a take a uh, you know a word from the shinto go out go out into the glory of nature and instead of looking at a at a cross up on the wall or instead of looking at you know whatever whatever symbol or statue is there as the as the symbol of your of your god instead of that go out go out into the world and look at the miracle of 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 creation, look at look at the face of God in the mountains and, and in the sun and in the aurora borealis, not not in a in a building that's all closed up to the world. I, that to me makes a lot of sense, um, and it also it also changes the way you think about your relationship to God. 
you know, if God is something I'm praying to as a statue in, in, in the middle of my, you know, sanctuary, let's say up on, a, up, on an, up on an altar, it's like a made of stone or something. Like what connection do I have to that? That stone thing is not alive. It doesn't interact with me. I'm not, I I'm not a part of it. It's this other thing. But when I go out into nature, I feel myself to be a part of it. I feel the wind on my face. I feel the moisture from the, from the river kind of, you know, carried on the wind and the, the heat from the sun on the back of my neck. You know, you feel like you're a part of this, of this majesty, of this mystery that surrounds you. Now, that is way more to the heart of the religious experience. Um, and, it, and, it, and it makes you feel like you're a part of it. And that, to me, is one of the deepest truths of religion. It's not something that you're, that you're separate from. God is something you are a part of. And I, I believe that. I believe the mystic experience tells you that. And Shintoism tells you that. All right, this is interesting, too. So they, they do have these shrines, even though the worship takes place outside. So listen to this. Within the shrine sanctuary, they have an inner chamber. It's kept locked, except when a priest is performing the sacred rites. Inside lies the Shintai. This is the sacred object or the divine embodiment of the kami that's enshrined there. The divine object is wrapped in silk and it's enclosed in a box which is never opened. Not even when the priest is doing his uh, rites, when the, when, the, when the inner chamber is opened. So this is interesting. It's like, okay, so there is a temple and inside the temple there is this stone object that's supposed to represent the god. But the worship is not being done to this sacred object. You're not giving offerings to it. You're not praying to it. You're doing those outside in the, in the world. So there's this really deliberate idea of, of both abstracting the idea of God and, and, and having the symbol inside the, the you know, central part of the sanctuary that's locked up that you know is there that represents the God. But when you want to see the God's face, when you want to experience God, you go outside into nature. So that's interesting. But it's also interesting that it, 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 it compares to the Christian or the Catholic kind of holy of holies. This idea of, um, uh, or Jewish, I should say, this idea of the temple, the, 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 you know, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and, and inside this sort of central part of the, of the uh, temple in Jerusalem is kept the Ark of the Covenant, like this symbol of God that, that it's so powerful that if you, you know, if you touch it or you approach it in the wrong way, it, it will kill you, which the Bible says that it did. Um, and it's kept locked, locked away. And it's only the high priest once a year that gets to even come close to it. When the high, when the high priest of Judaism in the old days would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and speak the name of God, which is never spoken except for on this one day. You've got this parallel here. Um, in the Shintoism and in, you know, this, this kind of ancient Jewish idea of, of having this abstract embodiment of God in the temple, even though uh, the Jews would be the first ones to tell you, like Moses when he came down from the mountain and, and said, you know, to his people, you've created this calf, this statue that you're worshiping, that there's nothing there. God is not there. So they're the first people to tell you that God is not in a object, Yet they still have a holy of holies, you know, where God is said to reside. The same thing that uh, is happening in Shinto. Gosh, I don't know what it means. I don't know what to make of it. I just find it very interesting. All right, so what about their Bible? Well, they don't have a founder, so they don't have a Jesus. Um, they, don't have a, they don't have a way of joining the religion, so they have no missionaries. And guess what? 
they don't have a Bible either. Uh, the religion existed for a very, very long time. It never had any scripture. It was just something that was passed down from father to son, uh, mother to daughter, you know, generation after generation. You know, respect for the kami, teach your kids that the world is, in, is imbued with spirits, that, you know, that you're imbued with spirits, that there's a way of respecting nature and yourself. Uh, that means you have to act a certain way in the world. All that stuff was just taught, and it was never written down. And that included prayers that they would memorize by heart. The prayers are called the Norito or Nori. Um, and they were just handed down orally for generations and generations. And th this is interesting, too. There's really no fixed dogma or body of beliefs. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no law like we have in the, in the Jewish tradition. There's no fixed dogma. The Shinto ideal is basically this to lead a pure and sincere life that is pleasing to the kami. So your, your responsibility is to live your life in a way that's pleasing to God. And like what that means is sort of left up to you. It's, it's unique for every individual. It's amazing. It's amazing. Rather than, rather than giving a ten, a 10 commandments that everybody has to follow or, or, or else you're out. You know, they don't, they don't have that. They're like, look, look into yourself follow your heart and and that's God speaking to you that's the kami guiding you you know always follow that path and 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 you will have lived a, a good life all right so shinto has no commandments or or specific moral code so nothing like that it says because all japanese people believe that they are distantly descended from the heavenly kami they also believe that the knowledge of what is right and good can be found within their own hearts so basically what I said before, but just adding here that the Japanese people believe that they were descended from the kami. So they're basically the sons of God, right? They're, they're the, they came from the kami themselves. So if they're God, if they're the descendants of God, then they have within them everything they need to know right from wrong. So there's no need to write a code of laws or morals. There's no need for that because, because the Japanese people have that capacity already in them. They're, they're kami themselves. This is how the, how, the, how the religion would make it. So to ask yourself the question about what to do or what's right and, what, and what's wrong is not something that you're going to defer to God for. You're going to look into your own heart for. It's beautiful. All right, she says, although Sh Shinto doesn't have a sacred scripture, it does have two highly revered texts whose origins date back to the 8th century A.D., so we're talking about the 700s AD. Now the religion is way more ancient than that. Now we talked about the Chinese influence on Shintoism beginning in like 200 AD. But Shintoism had been around a lot longer than that, you know, already. So we're basically fast forwarding 600 years even from the Chinese influence period when we start to write these things down for the first time. So just, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You know, we know that the... The Old Testament, for instance, was probably put together over hundreds of years, uh, many hundreds of years. The, the New Testament was, was written over, um, you know, certainly scores of years. You know, maybe it was written from the, the Gospel of Thomas, maybe the earliest one. It's not even biblical, but maybe it goes back to 20, 30 years after Jesus died, and the latest Gospel maybe 70, 90 years after Jesus died. So you've got time, obviously, between when Jesus lived and when this stuff was written down. When you look at Shintoism, though, it, it's much more closer to like the Jewish version. It, it was it was an oral tradition for a long, long time before it was ever written down. 
and that's you know you know we didn't learn to write until all that long ago so it's not a surprise okay um so the emperor at, at this time we're talking about the 700s ad now the Jap- japanese uh is, is an empire so they have an emperor and the emperor is who orders to have all of the ancient stories written down it's like look we're gonna lose this stuff if we don't write it down so he ordered it and there was a couple books that he ordered the first is called the kojiki and in Japanese, that, that means the, a record of ancient matters. So the Kojiki and then the uh, Nihongi. And the Nihongi is the Chronicles of Japan. And both of these, the Kojiki and the, the Nihongi, tell the story of Japan, the, the divine story of Japan. So it's, this is their book of Genesis, you might say. And it basically, it basically begins with kind of the creation of the world, and then it goes through all the history of Japan up to the emperors. So the, the idea here is you can imagine if I'm putting on my conspiracy theory hat that the emperor has ordered this, all of the old stories to be written down. And the story that it tells is of the creation of the universe from the beginning of time all the way up to the time where the spirits became the people of Japan and the people of Japan, you know, uh, had an emperor. So the story doesn't just record their holy stories it doesn't just do that it also it also creates evidence for why the emperor has the power he has because it because what the story is is you know beyond the creation of the universe it's basically the story of how god became the emperor so that's where the emperor's power comes from so the emperor had this book written for that reason i think that's pretty obvious but a, a side effect of that was that finally we have a record of all of these ancient stories that have now been compiled into a book. And we'll read, we'll read big chunks of that here in a second. Now, there are other books that detail the actions of the kami, so stories about the kami themselves, and they're not considered holy like the Kojiki and the Nihongi are. Um, they're called um, Ingishiki, I think, and they're uh, basically just stories of the kami, so spirit stories, you might call them. Um, they, they would be something like Greek myths. So these stories establish the divine origin of the line of emperors, tracing their ancestry from the sun goddess uh, Amarat. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce it again. Amaterasu uh, is her name. Um, a couple of other interesting facts before we get into the holy books, because I think that's where the that's where you're really going to get a taste of this stuff. Some interesting facts here. Um, from Shinto mythology, people learn that the kami can act unpredictably and are prone to do uh, all too human failings, jealousy, rage, annoyance, vanity, thoughtlessness. All of these sorts of like negative human characteristics, you see those things in the stories of the kami. So you can imagine if I'm reading uh, like a Greek myth about Zeus or whatever, Prometheus or something, and uh, you see like, for instance, Zeus is always trying to sleep with mortal women, even though he's married. Zeus is like a ph- philanderer. He's always, you know, messing around on uh, on poor uh, uh, Hera, his wife, uh, or Rhea, Hera, Hera, Hera. Anyway, um, so you've got this god from this Greek mythology, not not any god, the high god, and he's not like he's not like, it doesn't have a good character you know he's he has desires and uh you know he's not afraid to break the rules to get what he wants even if it means hurting people and zeus did that many many times in greek mythology so this is what this is what shinto is, does as well with their kami is that they tell stories of the kami and those stories are not 
they're not the kind of stories you would expect to hear if you were talking about these perfect, infallible, divine creatures, like the way we might talk about angels. It's much, much closer to the type of antics that the, the, the Greek gods got into. Um, and this is interesting because what it's doing is it's making a connection between, well, between, you know, human frailty, you might say, the types of things that humans are subject to that we don't like, that cause negative emotion for us, you know, anger, vanity, all these rage, all these sorts of emotions that we don't like. Um, he's saying that those, that those things are also seen in the kami. So the gods are, are subject to the same types of, of um, pitfalls as human beings. And it's just another way of connecting um, or, or, or bridging the gap between the gods, the kami, and man. Um, you know, in, in the Western world, we, we do so much to separate the idea of God and man that we feel like we're, that we, we couldn't be further distant from each other. The idea of man and the idea of God are polar opposites. There's nothing similar about them. Um, and, and this is the, the opposite approach in Shintoism. They're saying no, just like the ancient Greeks did. The gods, they're just like you and me. And this is what I find so interesting about this. That Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson both did a great job talking about those types of psychological forces. So something that makes you feel jealous or angry, let's say, this rage idea, um, or annoyed, or any of this stuff. That all of these feelings are something that people experience um, regardless of where you live, what time you live, what, what your DNA is like, where you're from, you know, your sensibilities, your personality, regardless of all of that stuff. Everybody feels jealousy, rage, annoyance, vanity, thoughtlessness, and on and on and on and on. That these sorts of negative characteristics appear in all of our lives at, at one time or another. It's almost like we are um, under their thumb. That there are forces that exist outside of us. And that they can impose themselves on us whenever they want to make us jealous or make us angry. And that's exactly how we talk about it. We say, that made me jealous. That made me angry. Like something outside of me touched me and made me jealous with some sort of magic. That this is the way we think about um, um, some of these psychological forces, let's say. Now, if we put that framing, like thinking about these things as psychological forces, if we put that instead in the, in the, in the guise of a, of a god or a kami, then then we can really understand that what the Greeks and perhaps even the Shintos, um, what they're getting at when they say that the gods fall victim to all the same plights that humans do is that really these aren't forces that are outside of you that can act upon you indiscriminately, but these are forces that actually exist already inside of everyone. This is why they can affect everyone because they're inside of everyone already, that all of the gods exist inside of you already. Now that is very much in line with what the mystic experience tells you. So it's really difficult at this point for me to say that Shintoism is not another great example of a, of a religion that's based on that type of mystic or religious experience. It's interesting. All right, another interesting uh, comparison to the Catholics um, the prayers that I talked about, the, the Norito, these are things that were 
um, that were committed to memory and they were passed down, you know, uh, uh, from generation to generation. It says that, that they're spoken even today in ancient Japanese. And this is a language that the modern Japanese people don't speak and don't understand. It would be like going to Greece and speaking an ancient Greek. Uh, the modern day Greeks could have no idea what you're talking about. Or when you go to a Catholic, like a conservative Catholic uh, church service, they will do their mass in Latin even today. So the whole audience sitting back there, they they speak Romanian or French or something. They don't speak Latin, the people. But the priest is up there doing his the whole thing in Latin anyway. So this is what this is what the the Shinto are doing. Um, they're, they're doing these classic prayers um, in the classic language, even though most people can't understand what, they're, what they mean. Now, I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit because the, the Shintos, they, they put a great deal of emphasis on the power of speech. So, and that's one of the, I mentioned earlier that the Buddhists, the way of the Buddha, that the Buddhists have a, um, a philosophy called the Eightfold Path. And one of those things is called right speech. It's figuring out how to speak properly. And that means honestly and beautifully and simply. You know, there, there, there are ways of doing it better than others. And there's a big emphasis on this. Like Kyle and I were talking about the other day about the power of words. And that, you know, in the old days, people thought that, you know, that you could give somebody a curse or a blessing with words. And that if you knew somebody's name, that knowing their name gave you some kind of supernatural power over them. And that there's a whole lot to do with, with words and speech that's very important and mysterious and mystical. And in Shintoism, that's, that's true. That's very true. And I think that's part of the reason why these Norito prayers are still spoken you know, today in this ancient language. Is because they're, they're afraid that by changing it at all... Even even just to update update it to the modern language, that they might that they might change some part of it that that was pleasing to the kami, you know that it was very carefully written the the prayer was very carefully written to be pleasing to the kami. So if I change it at all, that I that I've done something dreadfully wrong. And you can see, you can see elements of that even in like. Uh, Judaism, you know, when when they go back and they find these ancient, um, uh, ancient fragments of the Bible, like this very oldest um, existing scraps of the Old Testament, and they found them in all sorts of places. You know, they found them in Nag Hammadi in Egypt. They found them in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They they found them in Egypt. They you know the Coptic Church, and they they found them all sorts of places. But when they compare. Uh, these fragments, these ancient fragments of, of biblical passages, they find that they are identical today to the way they were, you know, uh, written down hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of years ago, that, uh, that it's something very important about keeping the words just so, that the words are very important, the order is important, the poetry of, of the phrases are important, everything is deliberate and important, and there's something about that, and I think that might be why these prayers, these Shinto prayers, are kept pristine like they were in ancient times. And uh, the book goes on to say that Onorito must be pronounced exactly as it was composed, or it loses its effectiveness in reaching the kami. 
Um, originally, this is another interesting fact. Originally, the priestly duties, um, they were carried out by the, the leaders of the clans. So they didn't have priests. They just had whoever the leader was of the, of the tribe. He was the one that did all the religious stuff. It wasn't until much later on that they that they had a priestly class. And today they have priests, just like, you know, we have ministers or, you know, the, the Catholics have priests. You know, they, they have that. But they didn't always. I thought that was kind of interesting. All right, so I'm going to give you Paula's rendition of the creation story from the from the Kojiki that we just talked about. This is their book of Genesis in the beginning story. Um, I'm going to give this to you the way that uh, the book uh, outlines it. In summary, it goes like this. According to Shinto, the universe was not created, but simply always existed. Now, I have to stop there because that's amazing. Um, there are very few religious traditions that say that, that the universe wasn't created, but that it always existed. And the reason is that that the most important thing about a God in general is that God is what created the universe. So that's the thing that makes God God. It's the thing that didn't have to be created. It's the thing that created everything, that started everything going. In Shintoism, that that doesn't happen. There isn't there isn't you know there isn't exactly a, a nothing and then a something. It's that it's that something about the, the universe or maybe the structure that makes the universe possible that always existed that was never created. So that's really interesting, and I think also is a parallel to the mystic experience. But um, I digress. I'll, I'll, I'll get back into this. Um, in its earliest stage, it was an unformed, oily, reedy sea. Eventually, the sea divided into three parts. The sky, or heaven, a middle level still covered by sea, which would become the earth, and Yamitsukuni, the land of darkness. As the universe divided, three invisible kami beings arose and gave birth to the other deities. All right, so there's a couple things in here that I, that I really like. Apart from saying that the universe always existed, it was never created. Um, the fact that the they say that the beginning stages was a was a unformed thing, like that, that's what the Bible says, the, the void, you know, the chaos. Um, and and it said that 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 chaos that that it was divided into three parts. Now I think this is extremely important. Because we don't have a creation from nothing here. What we have is, a, is a, a one thing that gets divided into everything that exists. So you're starting with one eternal thing that was never created. And, and to get things out of it, you're not, you're not having this God create them, poof, out of thin air. You're having this one thing divided up into all of the other things that are going to exist. The sky, the, hev- you know, the, middle, the middle kingdom, and then the underworld that they weren't created, that instead they were divided up from the one thing that exists. Whew, buddy, that is from the mystic experience. There is only one thing. There is only consciousness. From it are divided up all of the material being. From it come everything. And this is what the creation story is saying. I want to contrast this with a passage from the Nihongi, and this is the uh, not the Kojiki that we talked about, but the other one. And it says this, uh, it's giving like, um, like a couple of phrases. It's saying, hey, in, in, the ancient, in the ancient times, the stories about how the world came into be, they were told like this. So he's saying, some people said this, when heaven and earth began, a thing existed in the midst of the void. Its shape may not be described. 
Within it, a deity was spontaneously produced, whose name was Kunitoko Tachi. Next, there was Kuni no Satuchi. Next, there was Toyo Kuninushi. So for, apologies for the Japanese names. I, I'll try not to do that because it's a lot. Um, those names are more like um, epithets, which we talked about before. It's like descript, descriptors of characteristics that the god has. So you remember we were talking about the Sumerian god. Uh, Kyle, Kyle and I got a good laugh that one of his name was, I uh, can't remember, Sikor or something like that. And his, one of his epithets was Penis of the Storm. So they called the god by his name, but they also called him Penis of the Storm. These are epithets. It's like ways of talking about gods like um, or, or, or kings. If you guys remember Game of Thrones, the Khaleesi is called the Mother of Dragons. That, that's an epithet. So I tell you that just to, just to tell you that this, this phrase from the Nihongi is saying, look, one of the ancient pieces of wisdom that we have says that in the beginning there was just a void and that the, the heaven, heaven and earth were separated from this void. And they created these three things, these three gods, whose names I just pronounced that I will not do again. All right, it's also said, um, of old, when the land was young and the earth young, it floated about as it were floating on oil. At this time, a thing was produced within the land in the shape of a reed shoot when it sprouts forth. From this, there was a, uh, a deity developed whose name was, and, and so on and so forth, these three gods that are created. So you got this image here about this reed shoot, which, you know, if you've ever seen like young plants sprouting up, for, you know, in the early part of the spring, they've got these delicate shoots that are green, you know, and they, you just, you look at them and you see potential. It's like, you know, hey, this is the first sign that spring is here, that life is coming back to the, to the, to the, you know, landscape. And there's these, these early sprouts, you know, it's what the, uh, the deer, you know, where I'm from here in Ohio, the deer will go and, and eat them off, you know, little, little, you know, sprigs, little, you know, newly sprouted trees, all the little um, flower, uh, flowers that begin to sprout off of the trees before the blooms come, the, the deer will just come and eat them off. The, the point is that the imagery here of these reed shoots, we're talking about this primordial ancient ocean, there's nothing there, and out of it shoots this reed shoot, that, w that what you see is this first sprout of something coming out of this, n this nothingness, this, this oily sea. And it, and it does, it, it represents potential like for all of the things that are getting ready to come into, into being. And then another version of this, which says, before heaven and earth were produced, there was something which might be compared to a cloud floating over the sea. Well, that's interesting because it reminds me of... Uh, it reminds me of the Bible where it says, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And in the Old Testament, uh, they talk about the Word in the, in, in, during the beginning of time when the, when the, when the um, cosmos was created. It says that the Word floated over the surface of the water, over the surface of the deep. And that's what I see here. He says that uh, there was something which might be compared to a cloud floating over the sea. I mean, that that's... That's exactly the same idea. Uh, it had no place of attachment for its root. In the midst of this, a thing was generated which resembled a reed shoot when it first produced in the mud. This became straightaway transformed into human shape and was called, and then again, those three names again. So, so anyway, what we're seeing here are basically their opening passages of the book of Genesis in the beginning. 
and in the beginning there's this there's this 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 nothingness this thing that's called an oily sea that gets separated into heaven and earth and we remember that the sea the water image from like Carl Jung's like dream interpretation that that's a symbol that usually means the unconscious you know the sea is this vast you can't see the end of it it goes on and on and it's so deep you don't know what's in there and that's why it's a, it's a symbol for the unconscious it's you don't know what's in there and that's what your unconscious is like it's filled with things but you don't know what it's what's in there um, so again, the fact that the, the beginning is this oily sea and that there's this cloud floating over it, which is like consciousness. It's like the spirit of God hovering over the deep. And, um, and, uh, from, from that sprouts this, this reed shoot, which is the potential, the symbol of potential for all the life that's going to come out of it. And the first thing that comes are these three gods. Okay. And then it goes on to say, the fifth pair of kami to be born um, were. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to pronounce these Japanese names, and I do have to pronounce these ones because they're important. Um, Iz, Izunagi and Izunami. Okay, so this is the this is a male and a female god. Um, Iz, Izunagi and Izunami. Izunagi Izunami. I'm gonna try that. Jeez, I'll try not to butcher that. But they're very important because these are these are very these are maybe the most important kami uh, in the tradition of Japan because they're the ones that found Japan, and we'll see that in just a second here. I do want to say though, the fact that these are the fifth generation of kami to be born, it reminds me of another myth uh, that you see lots of places, but you see it in Native American mythology and you see it in Greek mythology about the five ages of man. So again, these are the fifth generation of gods to be born and in other religious stories there's there's four races of of creatures that god creates before before the current one before us and in the greek story that he makes them from gold silver bronze you know different he makes them out of different materials and for for one reason or another each generation of man you know has to be destroyed or they kill kill themselves out or something something goes wrong it's not until the fifth generation that you get to us, the modern world, where where God, the gods have finally got it, got it right enough that, you know, they're letting us go about, you know, our lives and not starting over. And this is what, again, a parallel that we have this fifth age of man, this is our modern age, and here we have the fifth generation of kami that we've arrived at. All right, uh, Azangi and Azami. Okay, so they're born a heavenly brother and sister who had more or less human form, it says. The pair had a special destiny to bring order to the unformed world below. Um, Jordan would say to bring order out of chaos. Um, they, they became the creators of Japan. Azagni and Izami descended by way of the rainbow bridge of heaven. Okay, so this is where I brought up Dragon Ball Z earlier. So they come from heaven down the rainbow bridge to earth. Izanagi and Izanami. They come down the rainbow bridge from heaven to earth. Now, this is a rainbow bridge that connects the world of heaven to the, to the world of earth. And it reminds me of things like, like Jacob's Ladder from the Bible, where Jacob goes to sleep and he, on that stone and he sees uh, in his dream, he sees a ladder coming down from heaven and angels coming, coming down from heaven to earth and going from earth to heaven. So there's that idea. But we also see it in 
kind of older uh, tribal religions and the, the idea of a world tree or, or an axis mundi. It's, the, it's seen as, as the thing that holds up the canopy of heaven. So it's like Mount, you know, Mount Olympus for the Greeks, let's say. There's always, there's always something that is seen as sometimes the, the realm of the gods, like Mount Olympus, but it's something that separates heaven from earth. It, it, it holds up the canopy of heaven over top of the earth. Um, and so that, that, again, is coming to mind when we talk about this rainbow bridge um, that the, again, heavenly brother and sister, uh, Azagani and, Az- and Azanami, come down from to earth. And this is what it says after they get here. It says they descend down the rainbow bridge, and then Izagani he draw, he draws his sword and and he dips it into the sea. And when he pulls it back out, the briny water drips off of his sword and lands into the water. When that happens, that becomes the first island of Japan. So this is another demerit for Paula, who wrote this book, um, that when you read the actual. Um, the actual myth it's not a sword at all it's like a, a spear um so you know that's just another demerit for paula here i have to point out we'll get there so um Zagani and Izanami, they're again they're the kami the fifth generation but they're the kami that finally that finally create japan they finally create the earth where where there was just this chaos and, and heaven and earth separated before now we have land making way for people. Now, there's a uh, ritual, a Shinto ritual. This is one of their, you know, holy observances. It's called the fire ritual. And it's in that book, that um, Ingashiki thing, that, that story of the kamis that I was telling you about. Um, and I want to read a part of it to you because it says, it says this, when the two pillars, the divine Izagani and Izanami, had intercourse, and she had deigned to bear the many tens of countries of the countries and the many tens of islands of the islands and had deigned to bear the many hundred myriad of gods. And so this is a, this is a, a, one, a part of the prayer that, that's being said during this fire ritual. And it's describing these, you might say the first two people, you know, the Adam and Eve of, of Japan, even though they're sort of gods as well. Um, it's talking about them as pillars these two pillars, male and female. So like Jordan Peterson would, would, would always emphasize and Carl Jung would always emphasize that these transpersonal forces, these psychological forces that we, that we usually talk about as gods, that they always have two flavors. They always have a masculine and a feminine flavor. And that's because the world is masculine and feminine. So when we come up with a god um, that's responsible for the world, it has to reflect both sides of that coin. Or, or it kind of rings false to us. And the fact that this fire ritual calls them two pillars leads some support to the idea that, that they are the pillars that hold up heaven and earth, that they're the pillars that separate them, that create this place where we can live, where we can exist, the place in the middle between heaven and earth. And then again, the fire ritual goes on to say that not only did Izagami and Izagami create um, the earth, but they also created uh, all of the rest of the gods and all of the rest of the lands that exist. All right, so getting back to Paula's uh, summary of the story, um, she says that they get married and that their union produces the eight principal islands of Japan and so on and so forth. All right, now, later on in the story, Azanami dies. And Azagani, he goes after his, his, his sister. He goes after her in the, un- in the underworld. He plunges into the river Woto 
to purify himself. And that's something that's important in Shintoism is just like we, you know, uh, our baptism ceremony or ritual bathing is really common in religions all over the world that you wash before you go worship. And so as Agony, he washes before he goes into the underworld to try to find his, his sister, his wife as well, but sister. It says, while he's washing himself in the river, it says, from his discarded clothes sprang 12 new kami. As he bathed, yet more kami appeared. As he washed his nose, he gave birth to the storm god. As he cleaned his right eye, out came the god of the moon. As he washed his left eye, he gave birth to Amaratsu. Um, her name means the great kami shining in heaven, or the kami of the sun, which we talked about. Now, I find this very interesting. Very interesting. Um, not, for, not, not for the idea that, uh, that he's doing this ritual bathing, and you know, we have things like um, baptism in, our, in you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition that is parallels to that. It's, it, that's, not, that's not particularly interesting because it's so common. But what is interesting is the idea that all these gods are being born out of um, Azagony as he's bathing. Especially when you, when you look at the details about one eye, um, from one eye comes the sun, and from another eye the moon, and that kind of thing. Um, and you may remember, I, t- I told you this um, in, a, in an earlier podcast, that, that there are these weird creation stories that you see in other religions. And there's one in China that's very similar to this, about a god called Pangu, and in Scandinavia, in the Viking religions, there was a god that was similar called called Yamir, which we've talked about. And in India, also, a god called Prajapati, which is, which is similar. In all three stories, Pangu, Yamir, and Prajapati, the idea is that you've got this primordial god that existed before any other gods, and that, and that the god dies or, or sacrifices itself in, in one way or the other, so that the the various parts of its body become the cosmos. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, blood becomes the oceans, its bones become the mountains, you know, all that kind of thing. And with the Pangu story in particular, that one comes from China, which is not far from, uh, Japan, obviously, um, that in, in Pangu, one of his eyes becomes the moon and one of his eyes becomes the sun. And you see exactly that happening with the Zangi bathing. It's like he's bathing, he's washing his nose, um, you know, that becomes the storm god. He washes his right eye, that becomes the moon god. He washes his left eye, that becomes the sun god. So you see the exact same thing happening in the Shinto story as you have in the ancient Chinese story and also the Viking story and the Indian story. Although, you know, Azagani isn't dying for this to happen, he's just washing himself. But I think that's really interesting, Um, partly because the idea of dying is connected to the idea of being of being born again. And that's that's obviously very closely linked to the mystic experience. But also the idea of bathing is is also connected to the idea of being born again. Um, so we can think about that from the Christian perspective. So you get baptized, you go down into the water, and when you get brought back up, you're 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 another person. You're a different person. You've been born again. It's symbolic, obviously, but that's what's happened here. So it's not like Pangu from China that that died, and and his rebirth is this what happens to his body after he dies. It becomes the cosmos, so he has a second life, um, it, it, by way of the cosmos. So that's sort of happening here too, where um, Azagani is is bathing, and he comes up out of the water. Um, you know, all of the dirt and stuff that came off of him has become all of these all of these things in the world. So I think these stories are very similar, and the connection to the Chinese one in particular, um, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that th- those stories are related.
All right. Enough paraphrasing. Let's uh, let's drop Paula in the the stolen book from the library, and let's actually get into let's actually get into the Kojiki. Um, I got some stuff I want to say about this, and I, I thought I'd give you the actual words of, from the holy book, so that we're not talking about some, somebody else's paraphrasing. Especially Paula you made too many mistakes. Paula. Okay, so here we go. The Kojiki. Um, I'm just going to start reading this to you. The names of the deities that were born in the plain of high heaven, when the heaven and earth began, were the deity, and this is the name of the deity, master of the center of heaven. Next, again, this is another name, the high producing wondrous deity. Next, this is another name, the divine producing wondrous deity. So this is why I didn't want, like to read the epithets, especially not in Japanese because I don't speak Japanese. Um, but you see what I mean? Like I could just say, you know, one name and it would be a lot easier to follow but the epithets are master of the great center of heaven high producing wondrous deity so suffice it to say there are three deities better that are created and it says these three deities were all deities born alone and hid in their persons that's interesting not sure what that means exactly but he's basically saying that these deities are hidden from one another that they're inside themselves. At this point, they're alone and hidden from one another. But there are three gods that, were, that have been created. It says, The names of the, of the deities that were born next from a thing that sprouted up like unto a reed shoot uh, when the earth young and like unto floating oil drifted about where the pleasant reed shoot Prince Elder, that's another epithet, another deity's name, um, and the next heavenly eternally standing deity, uh, these two deities were likewise born alone and hid at their presence. So again, it, it sounds way more complicated than it is because of how the names of the gods are. It's not just one name, but this epithet. But suffice it to say, the story is basically saying just what we are, what we talked about already. That that in the beginning, um, there was this place in high heaven where three gods formed, and then from these three gods, um, all these other uh, gods were able to come about. Um, all right, so. These epithets, as, as annoying as they are to read, like pleasant reed shoot prince elder, what does that mean? Heavenly, eternally standing, you know, what does that mean? So these epithets are names that talk about a characteristic of the god. They explain what, what the god is all about in some way that just calling them a random name doesn't exactly do. It's like right to the point, a mother of dragons, right to the point. You know, this god is a mother of dragons. Um, so let's talk about that for a second, you know, try to make some sense out of this. We know these three gods were created, but what does that mean? What, what's it supposed to mean? So this is what I think. Um, what's being described by Pleasant Reed Shoot Prince Elder? It may be something like, you know, taking Elder, we're talking about the first one, you know, the first Reed Shoot. And like I said before, that symbol of potential that came out of the primordial waters in the beginning, and it represents the first thing born. It represents the potential for all other things to be born, to follow in its in it follow its lead, you know? So calling this God Elder is like the first example. And the pleasant reed shoot prince, you know, he's the first example of life that springs forth like a like a young reed shoot. So I think that when when the God is called Pleasant Reed Shoot Prince Elder, that that's what it means. It's like, hey, this is this is the first time that Akami became life. It's the first time it happened. That's why it's the elder God. And the pleasant reed shoot is describing what it is. It's this 
it's this potential. It's the first thing, the first thing of, that's that's alive, that's brought into being. All right. How about how about one of these other gods? How about heavenly, eternal standing deity? How about him? What does that mean? Maybe maybe something like the force that stands eternally, the thing that separates heaven from earth. You know, the Axis Mundi that we were talking about, the World Tree or, or the Sacred Mountain. You know, um, every culture, every tribal culture that has a sacred mountain, whether that's Mount Ararat or Mount Olympus or whatever it is, that those holy mountains are, are seen by those tribal people as symbolic, as something that holds up the heavens. That, that when you look up at this expanse of stars and dark night sky up above you, that that's just resting on the mighty arms of the, of the mountains. So it's, it's seen like that. So maybe heavenly eternal standing deity is that. It's the thing that eternally separates heaven from earth so that there can be this middle place where we exist. Something like that. All right, so this goes on. Uh, the names of the deities that were born next were the earthly standing, uh, earthly eternally standing deity, next to the luxuriant integrating master deity. Well, that's a mouthful. The luxuriant integrating master deity. Uh, what is that? Maybe something like the force that joins or integrates substances or ideas or objects. I mean, thinking about. Uh, calling calling a god luxuriant obviously is just one of these fancy ways of saying you know how luminous and glowing and great gods are. That, those are words that you see used almost like respectfully. We're going to say something nice about the way you you know what you, the way you look or the way you come across. You, this the god is luxuriant, but the important thing is the integrating master. So what is what is the integrating master? You know what's integration? It's taking two things, joining them together to create something new. You know, integrate them together and create something new. So that that's what I think is happening here. We've got these first three gods. And from these three gods, you know, remember, they were created alone and separate from one, one another. But once you get this integrating master god, then these th- these original three gods can, can come together. And from the combination of the interaction between these three gods, can, can who knows what that can produce? That can produce an infinite number of new things, of new combinations. So the again the the luxuriant integrating master deity is whatever the force is that makes that possible that combines substances and objects and ideas and creates new things out of them. Remember Shintoism is considered considers the earth as this constant process of creation. So that's what I see there. I see the the integrating master kami as the force that allows this multiplicity of things to happen, this crazy web of complexity. So it goes on to say these two deities were likewise deities born alone and hid their persons. The names of the deities that were born next were the deity Mud Earth Lord, next his younger sister, the deity Mud Earth Lady. So this is interesting. So now we have Mud Earth Lord and Mud Earth Lady. So you might just imagine, you know, maybe like the early the early Earth, you know, uh, maybe that's what we're talking about. But we're now talking about it in the form of a masculine and a feminine, feminine together. So we see this all the time in myths where, where gods will have consorts. They always have a, a male and a female version that are connected together, usually by marriage. You know, that's the easiest way of making it happen in a myth. So like, for instance, Zeus is not just Zeus. He's Zeus and Hera, and they always go together. And so that, that's what we have here. We have, these, we have this masculine and feminine being highlighted. And then the next god that's born, the next kami is called the germ-integrating deity, what is that? Well, what's a germ? 
You know, a germ is like, well, you can think of think about it like that, the very beginnings of a disease, right? It's something that if it gets in you, can multiply and become uh, become more. The germ is like the is like the fertilized egg. It's like the thing that can become something. That's the germ. So, so we again we had these first three gods that were born. Then we get the integrating master who's born. Now we get the germ integrating deity. So this is something that can put that little spark of life into new things. So now not only can we have new things being born now that we have this integrating master god, but we have this new god that can put germs in them. So it can it can not only create new things, but now it can create new th- forms of life. Oh, okay. And so that also ties into the idea of Shinto being this um, constant process of creation. We're not just creating things, we're also creating life forms. You know, that's, that's what evolution's doing. So it goes on to say that next, his younger sister, the life-integrating deity. So that, I think that goes hand-in-hand hand with the germ-integrating deity. Uh, next, the deity, elder of the great place, and his younger sister, elder lady of the great place. So again, you have... Maybe something to do with like a sacred place, because when it says the great place, I don't know what that means other than maybe setting setting aside some place as sacred. And we see this again with a man and a woman, God created together. And then next, the de- the deity Izangani and Izamani, and they're called the Izagani is called the male who invites, and his younger sister Izanami is called. Uh, the female who invites. Those are also their epithets, but I'll just try to stick with the simpler names. So we get all the way down to the Izagani and Izamani, who are the founders of Japan, the mythological, you know, beginning. And it says, Hereupon all the heavenly deities commanded the two deities, Izangani and Izanami, ordering them to make, consolidate, and give birth to this drifting land. Granting to them a heavenly jeweled spear, they thus deigned to charge them. So the two deities standing upon the floating bridge of heaven... This is the rainbow bridge. Pushed down the jeweled spear and stirred with it. Whereupon, when they had stirred the brine and drew the spear up, the brine that dripped down from the end of the spear was piled up and became an island. This is the island of of Anogoro. So that was the first island of Japan. Uh, Again, you can see in the actual story, it's not a sword, it's a jeweled spear. Um, But again, the, the... the first man and the first woman god, they show up on uh, on Earth. Uh, they they dip this magical spear down into the ocean, and when they pull it up, the water that drips from the tip of the spear that hits the ocean forms the first islands of Japan. Now, having descended from heaven onto the island, they saw to the erection of a heavenly pillar. They saw to the erection of a hall of eight fathoms. Then Izagani and Izanami uh, quote, we should create children. And he said, quote, let us go around the heavenly pillar. And, w- and when we meet on the other side, let us be united. Do you go around from the left and I will go from the right? When they met, Izanami spake first, exclaiming, ah, what a fair and lovable youth. Then Izagani said, ah, what a fair and lovable maiden. But afterwards he said, it was not well that the woman should speak first. Now, I got to compare that to, to Genesis chapter 3, where he's, after Adam uh, gets, uh, gets busted for eating the apple, he says, The woman whom thou gavest to, me, gavest to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I did eat. Same thing here. We got, we've got, uh, you know, 
the Adam uh, character in, in Shinto uh, getting in trouble with God and pointing right to his wife and saying it was her fault. Just like we see in the book of Genesis. I just found that funny. I, I, had, to, I had to mention that. So anyway, the idea here, guys, is that the two gods here, um, the first man and the first woman, they've created the first island. They come down to Japan. They create these heavenly pillars. And what they decide to do is to create, to have children, to create more like themselves. And the ritual is for them to go, one of them goes around the pillar one way. One of them goes around the pillar the other way. And they're going to meet in the middle. And when they meet, they're going to say to each other, again, the woman says to the man, um, uh, what a fair and lovable youth. And the man says to the woman, what a fair and lovable maiden. But this didn't go well. And, uh, and uh, Azogany is not happy with it. He says, um, it, uh, it was not well that the woman should have spoke first. It should have been me that spoke first. The magic's all wrong. So anyway, it says the child which was born to them was uh, Haruku, the leech child, which, which then three years old was still unable to stand upright. So they placed the leech child in a boat of reeds and let it float away. Okay, so basically what they're saying here is because the woman spoke first, uh, the magic that was allowing them to create more of themselves didn't go well. And the child that was born to them was this, this leech child, whatever that means. You know, a leech is something that, you know, sucks blood out of you. It's pe- people don't enjoy having a parasite like a leech on them. And, it, you know, it hurts to get them off. And, they're, you know, it's not something people like. So to describe this child as a leech child, I think, speaks volumes. And then to say that when the child was three years old, it still couldn't stand. So what they're saying is that whatever that was done to create this child was done wrong. And so the child turned out wrong. And what do they do about that? They put the child in a boat of reeds and they let it float away. They say, sayonara. Um, I have to say again that putting an important child in a boat uh, of reeds and floating it down uh, the river is something that happened in the story of Moses and in the story of Sargon of Akkad. So that's not an uncommon story in myths either, but how that would have, uh, that story would have showed up in Japan is beyond me. But there you have it. Um, again, it, it's, it's, it reminds me again of like in Genesis when um, there's sort of two different stories in Genesis about the creation of man and uh, one in one story God creates man and woman out of out of clay and another story he creates man out of clay and woman out of Adam's rib so there's some uh, rabbi stories rabbinical stories that explain that by saying uh, oh well actually God did create man twice he created Adam Adam and Eve but Eve or excuse me Lilith he they created Adam and Lilith and Lilith uh, wanted to be equal to man. And uh, that made for a very unha- unhappy Adam and a very unhappy life in the garden. And eventually Adam complained enough that God got rid of Lilith and replaced her with Eve, which is the, which is the woman that came from the rib instead of the woman that was made from clay like Adam. So the this, this story basically says because Lilith was made from clay just like Adam, they were equal. And she saw them as equal. And Adam didn't like that. So it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a patriarchy type of story. Um, I'm not going to give a lot of credit to that, but there is a parallel here, where um, the creation wasn't done properly with Lilith. It had to be done again with Eve. So this is what we're seeing here, when when Azanami spoke first, that didn't please Azogany, just like it didn't please uh, Adam when uh, 
when uh, Lilith, you know, wanted to be equal to him. All right, so the story continues. Hereupon the two deities took counsel, saying, The children to whom we have now given birth are not good. It will be best to announce this in the place of the heavenly deities. They ascend forthwith to heaven and and inquired of the heavenly deities. Then the heavenly deities commanded them, saying, They were not good because the woman spoke first. Descend back again and amend your words. So thereupon descending back, they again went round the heavenly pillar. So they repeated the process just as before, only this time the man speaks first. And then next, at next they gave birth to the island of Futana and of Iu. Uh, this island has uh, one body and four faces, and each face has a name. So this is how that passage concludes. Basically just saying that when they went back and they did the ritual again, and they did it right, and this time Izagani spoke first, the man, that then the magic was done right, and the kids they had were, were just fine, and they could have as many as they want that way. So I find that interesting for the reason I already brought up, um, but also um, also because, uh, what, oh boy, I'm losing it. Ah, oh, it's gone. Damn it. Anyway, there was another point there. Um, so they, they continue from here to make all the rest of the, of the earth and all the rest of the spirits that exist, um, that they're responsible for that. So this is the story as it's laid out in the Kojiki and has Paula summarized it earlier, uh, to, uh, you know, to my chagrin, it was, it was not the best, but here you have it from the horse's mouth. Now here's where the story gets particularly interesting. Um, I call this the dark side of the great mother. So we can talk about um, Azagami. Uh, definitely when we, when we think of Azagani and Azagami as the primordial mother and father of the world, that they are the thing that Jordan Peterson would call chaos and order. So Azagami is the great mother in that, in that she's, she's the one that corresponds to chaos. She's the, the um, feminine principle. And, uh, uh, and Azagami, Azaga, Azaga the, the male, he's going to correspond to the masculine principle. He's going to be order. Okay, so let's just keep that in mind, and here we go. All right, it says, um, this is when uh, Azagami has died, and here we go. Thereupon, Azagani, wishing to meet and see his younger sister, followed after her to the land of Hades. So when from, from the place she raised the door and came out to meet him, Azagani spoke, saying, My lovely younger sister, the lands that I and thou made are not yet finished making, so come back. Then Azanami answered, saying, Lamentable indeed, that thou camest not sooner. I have eaten of the furnace of Hades. Nevertheless, I wish to return. So I'll stop right there and just say, when she says, I have eaten from the furnace of Hades, this is something that's common. You, you even see it in Greek religion, where once, you, once a person goes to the underworld, that they, they do sort of have this, this ability to return to the land of the living until they take in themselves something from the land of the dead. So, you know, for instance, somebody who dies, you know, in the mythological world, they still have to eat even in the underworld. So if they were to eat while they're in the land of, of the dead, then they, then they become permanently dead. They become a part of the land of the, of the underworld and they can no longer ever return to the land of the living. And this is exactly what we see here. She says, I have eaten of the furnace of Hades. Nevertheless, I wish to return. So she's like, I, I, I do still want to leave, but, I've, I've, but I'm permanently a part of the underworld. 
She says, moreover, I will discuss it particularly with the deities of Hades. So she's like, I'm going to go see if I can get out of this. Um, she says, look not at me. So she tells Isogony not to look at her. Having thus spoken, she went back inside the palace, and as she tarried there very long, he could not wait. So Isogony was getting impatient. So having taken and broken off one of the end teeth of the comb stuck in his hair, he lit one light and went in and looked. So he made like a, he made like a, like a torch out of the comb from his hair. He saw maggots were swarming, and she was rotting, and in her head dwelt the great thunder, and in her breast dwelt the fire thunder, and in her left hand dwelt the young thunder, and her right hand dwelt the earth thunder, and her left foot dwelt the rumbling thunder, and her right foot dwelt the, the couchant thunder. Um, altogether, eight thunder deities had been born and dwelt there. So, so Isogony gets impatient. He goes in after his wife. Um, she's trying to argue with the rest of the gods to, to let her go back with her husband. And she told him not to look at her, to stay where he was. He gets impatient. He gets worried. So he lights this torch and he goes in after her. And what he sees is her face swarming with maggots. Her body's rotting. And in her rotten body are, are living these t eight terrible thunder spirits that are living inside her body. That, that's what he sees. All right. It says, Overawed by the sight, he fled back. Whereupon Azanami said, Thou hast put me to shame. Now, he, she told him not to look at her. And now she, he has, and she says, You have put me to shame. And at once she sent a deity called Ugly F Female of Hades. So that's just one of those epithets. He sends this lady after him to pursue him, and he fled. It says, So he fled on. His younger sister sent the eight thunder deities with a thousand and five hundred warriors of Hades to pursue him. Last of all, Azanami came out herself in pursuit. So she's super pissed that he disobeyed her, that he looked at her. Um, and, and she's so upset and ashamed because he saw the terrible things she'd become that he sends the ugly female of, of the underworld after her, an army uh, of of dead you know warriors led by these eight thunder gods all after him to 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 do him harm uh which seems strange to me but there it is and you know he still escapes so she goes after him herself that's where we are so he drew a thousand draft rocks and with a and with it blocked up the even pass of hades and placed the rock in the middle and they stood opposite to, the, to one another and exchanged leave-takings. So basically, none of these people got to Exogony in time. He, he throws this big rock down to kind of block the gate of the underworld so she can't get to him. But she's standing there on one side of the rock, and he's standing on the other, and they're just kind of exchanging their final words to each other. Okay, here we are. Um, and they stood opposite to one another and exchanged leave-takings. And Azanami said, My lovely elder brother, if thou do like this, I will, one, I will in one day strangle to death a thousand of the folk of thy land. Then Azagani replied, My lovely sister, if thou do this, I will in one day set up a thousand and five hundred. So this is pretty brutal. Um, you know, it, it's such a slight to her that, he, that she disobeyed that he disobeyed her and saw her in that state, that he, that she wanted to kill him, destroy him for having seen it, first of all, which is strange, her husband and brother for that matter. 
And then when, when she can't get to him, she says, I, you know, the curse that I'm going to put on you is that I'm going to kill a thousand of your people that are alive up there on earth. I'm going to kill a thousand of you every day. That's how mad I am. And he says, do what you do, what you will. But if you do that, I'm just going to turn around and create 1,500. So there's always going to be more people. And so what's being said here is that the forces of, uh, you know, good and evil are always, are always ra- uh, raging uh, in, the, in the world and in ourselves. And that, um, and that the, those primordial forces of, of being are going to destroy and kill. And that's why death exists. But that life will always conquer death. So that, so that Azagani is always going to be creating more lives, more new lives, than Azanami is going to be destroying. And that's his promise to her. Now, I don't know what this brings to your mind, what, what it makes you think of, but the idea that Azagani was not supposed to look at her and that when he did, all this terrible stuff happened, that that story rings a bell. That's something that I've heard before. Does anything come to mind to, for you? All right, I've got a couple. So listen to this. There's a story, um, an ancient Greek story, it's the story of um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus and Eurydice. So this story, it's old. It goes back to 530 BC, the first time it was written down. It probably is much older than that, but it's a very old story indeed. The reason I tell you this is because, well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. There's a version of the story, a famous version. It's, st- it's told in a book called Bullfinch's Mythology. And this is basically a, I'm pretty sure, a British guy that compiled all the ancient Greek and Roman stories uh, together. And um, it's a famous book because they're all there and they're well, really well done. So I'm going to read you the story uh, or talk about this, the version from Bullfinch's Mythology. So he tells the story of Orpheus. And Orpheus is the son of Apollo and of a muse. So he is a god. Orpheus is a god. And he marries the beautiful Eurydice. Now Eurydice, however, she, she finds herself at some point in the story running away from the unwanted sexual advances of this other person. So she's, she's fleeing from basically getting raped. And as she's running away, because she's a good woman, she wants to be faithful to her husband and she doesn't want to be raped, right? So as she's running away, fate intervenes and she steps on a, on a viper and it turns around and it bites her and she dies. So she's trying to do the right thing. And as a consequence, she doesn't watch where she's going. She steps on a poisonous stake and dies. Now, Orpheus, he goes right to the gates of Hades to rescue her, his love. He goes all the way down to the underworld. And he says to the, god of, the gods of the underworld, O deities of the underworld, to whom all we who live must come, hear, by, hear my words, for they are true. I come not to spy out the secrets of Tartarus, nor to try my strength against the three-headed dog who guards the entrance. I come to seek my wife. Love has led me here. Love, a God all-powerful, I implore you by these abodes full of terror, these realms of silence and uncreated things, unite again the thread of, of Eurydice's life. Grant her to me, I beseech you. If you deny one, I cannot return alone. You shall triumph in the death of us both. So Orpheus was permitted to take her away with him on one condition, that he should not turn around to look at her, uh, until they should have reached the upper air, so until they reach the 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 entrance back to the to the world of the living. 
So under this condition, they proceeded on their way. Um, Orpheus led and she followed through through dark passages, um, uh, steep passages in total silence until they had nearly reached the outlet to the cheerful upper world. When Orpheus, in a moment of forgetfulness, to assure himself that she was still following, cast a glance behind him, when instantly she was borne away. So again, the, the, the gods of the underworld told him that he could not turn around and look at her. But he, as long as he didn't do that, as long as he obeyed, he could lead her all the way back out and in, back up into the world of the living. And if he could only do that, he would have succeeded in getting his wife back. But at the very last minute, he turns around and looks at her and bam, she's gone, permanently gone back to the underworld forever because he couldn't keep his promise. And I've got another, uh, another that you might find more familiar because it comes from the book of Genesis. Uh, this, the chapter in the book uh, is talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you guys remember, those two cities get destroyed by God, you know, fireballs from heaven, all that sort of thing. They just come down and destroy them. Why? Because those cities were wicked, the Bible says, whatever that means. And then a good man named Lot and his family, they, they go to one of these cities and uh, they, they find themselves, put themselves up for a night and... Um, and the people of the town come out and they say, hey, you got to you got to give us your children to rape. You know, you're, you're here. You're, you're in our town. You're you know, we're giving you hospitality. We're not we're not killing you. So hand over your daughters, you know, hand them over. And of course, God didn't didn't like that so much. Um, you know, these are already wicked people kind of um, they they broke the, the last straw, you might say. And uh, Sodom and Gomorrah got the, um, you know, the. Uh, a brunt of God's vengeance. And the story in, the, in Genesis, it reads like this. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and they set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, escape for, for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in, in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back and from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. So here you go. You've got... Lot and his wife, um, they're getting a pass. They're, God is allowing them to escape this terrible situation that they're in. And Sodom and Gomorrah puts them outside the, the city, and he says, flee up into the mountains. Go now, because I'm going to destroy these cities for their wickedness. Um, just don't look back. And Lot's wife looks back and immediately turns into a pillar of salt. So what does that mean? What, what's all this, all this business about um, not looking back? I mean, it's, it's obviously really important in, in the Shinto religion, it, in the story of kind of the founding gods, the Adam and Eve of, of the Shinto religion, you might say. And the story here is that, uh, that uh, Azagani looked back and that there were terrible consequences for that. So that was the cruel fate of Azanami. Perhaps what the story of Azanami, uh, Lot's wife, and Eurydice, um, wh what they're trying to say is something like, Keep your eyes on the prize. 
keep moving forward. Put the past in your rear view, something like that. But why attribute to this any religious or spiritual significance? Why? Because, as we've already noted, the duty of the Shinto follower are to live in harmony with the kami and to continue the act of creation from which the kami and the cosmos emerged. So focusing on the past, it keeps you contained in the known, as Jordan Peterson would say, where everything is explored already. Focusing on the future, on your ideal state, it drives you ever further into the unknown. This is where life happens, where new things are discovered and brought into being, where creation continues. This is the domain of the kami. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.